1: We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day.
2: Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your
3: podcasts.
4: Hello and welcome to History Hack for another special episode of Shark Futures. We've got something really special this week. Rather than just Zach and I telling you about how the Peninsula War started and how we both seem to hate Napoleon Bonaparte, we're actually going to do some proper history. Uh, We're going into a cause, actually, that is close to both of our hearts, which is Waterloo Uncovered. Uh, We are joined with a host of the fantastic project that not only are doing archaeological work on the battlefield, but are also rehabilitating veterans from uh, current and recent conflict. So it's going to be, we're going to look at both of those. It's going to be really interesting because they are rewriting history and helping people who've been scarred by recent wars. So there's a, a really interesting bits.
2: So we are joined by Tony Pollard, Professor of Conflict Archaeology at the University of Glasgow, obviously part of the Waterloo Uncovered team. Stuart Eve from LP Archaeology, again, part of the Waterloo Uncovered team. Katie Buckley, who is head of programs at Waterloo Uncovered, and Sam Wilson, archaeological supervisor at Waterloo Uncovered. How are you all, folks? Good.
5: Very, very well, now? thank
2: you. Yeah. Good. Marcus, do you want to give people a little bit of a, a flavour of? I guess we should talk a little bit about Fougamore first of all, shall we?
4: Yeah, uh, we really should. Uh, this where Waterloo Uncovered kind of started, I believe, and it's where the battle starts for us as historians. Uh, Waterloo, for those who don't know the two great armies with the <laughs> two off sides are drawn up in the morning uh, the Anglo-Allied Army and often wrongly referred to as the British Army are drawn up on the Mont Saint-Jean Ridge uh, under our hero, Duke Wellington but facing him, slightly outnumbering Sir Napoleon Bonaparte with his army and off in the distance, let's not forget there are another two armies under Grouchy and under Blue Curve, the Prussians. So we've got a huge multinational force. And at some point, about 10, 10 10.30 in the morning, fighting starts down at Hougamont. Hougamont is a chateau, a farm, Hougamont firm, and uh, that's really where the troops under Jerome Bonaparte tried to break in to a few companies, often labeled as uh, light companies of the guards, but actually there are German, there are Dutch, there are other troops there as well. Fighting rages on, very famously they shut the gates and uh, trap off a few people, but now underwater loo and Covered, uh, they've actually started to find out there's a lot more going on around that area, and uh, what I think is so interesting on this is not only do we have these archaeological experts in the room today, but when they're out digging, they have uh, rehabilitated soldiers, some with mental scars and some with physical. Uh, and this is all part of the Waterloo Uncovered program, which is what makes it so important. So really starting us off, I just want to know from each of you, how did you get involved about Waterloo Uncovered and how did it come about?
1: Um, well, I, I guess I might be the the first on board. I, in the summer of 2014, I got an email from Mark Evans and Charlie Fournette, one of whom is still serving Coldstream Guards and one is ex-Coldstream Guards, ex-captain, and inviting me down to a meeting at the barracks in London um, to discuss a potentially exciting project. And I duly went, and um, in the very interesting environments of of their barracks, we, we discussed what became Waterloo Uncovered, um, which Charlie suggested should be Waterloo Underground, and I still I still chuckle at that. I don't know why. I'm still not that jaundiced, but it became Waterloo Uncovered. But basically, they said, "How would you like to go to Waterloo Uncovered and 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 direct an archaeological project? Given that you know you're you're a name in the world of conflict archaeology, so." Um, I have to say, Waterloo Uncovered was never on my bucket list as an archaeologist, um, but given the combination of circumstances which importantly included working with military veterans which I was already starting to do then with regard to the Falklands War um, and the profile of the project which would attract the, uh, some of the best in the business, um, I thought I can't say no to this. So. We agreed at that meeting that I would I would proceed with the team, and we built it from there. And then all of a sudden, you know, the likes of Stu Eve, um, who's a genius um, with the technicalities of field recording, came on board, and we've never looked back, really.
3: Yes, yeah, so I guess uh, I was next on board. I'm not sure about the genius aspect of it, but... Um... No, so actually I went, I'm a professional archaeologist and work for a company called LP Archaeology. So we do commercial archaeology um, kind of in advance of uh, property development and that type of thing. Uh, but I was also at university with Mark and Charlie, who, funnily enough, both have archaeology degrees. I'm not quite sure how they managed it, but they do. Um, and I think what happened was they phoned up Tony and Tony was like, that sounds great. But we need some archaeologists and then they sort of looked through their little black book of who was still around and working in archaeology from the course and i think i was probably the only choice so they uh, so sort they of gave me a call and um, we managed to get some some diggers involved so yeah basically I, I and my company lp we we sort of look after the professional digging side of it as well um, things often got boring jobs and you have stuck with the uh, with the art of digging in fields Exactly, because that's not boring at all, Marcus. No, not at all. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't describe it, the glamour of, of
2: digging in fields, because, you know, with the, the rain and so on, I, I guess it uh, would be creating a, a false perception of archaeology. Much though I love archaeology, I'm very conscious that I have two, uh, two uh, lecturers in the room and... Uh, don't want to suggest to all that they shouldn't study archaeology at university because they absolutely should, and I'm just digging myself a deeper hole here. Um, but having made a complete fool of myself, let's go to Katie. What got you into Waterloo Uncovered?
6: Well, classically, I did also study archaeology, <laughs> so that helps. Uh, but at York, not UCL. I'm just going to get that in there. Um, so, yeah, I joined the project uh, in 2019, actually, which feels a lot longer than that, I should say. Uh, but yeah joined in 2019 after kind of graduating and messing around in journalism and other things for a few years realized i should probably go and do something i cared about um and ended up here and weirdly you know my some of my family and military and the other half were all medical so they were finally relieved that i was no longer selling dresses online and doing something worthwhile life apparently and um, so that's where i am now
4: <laughs> uh, definitely definitely i mean i'm sure people need dresses but we need history And uh, we were talking about Muddy Holes, and somebody I always see taking photos in very interesting Muddy Holes is uh, Sam Wilson. How did you get involved?
5: Um, Well, it it must have been around about the time that Tony had the kind of first meeting with Mark and Charlie. I, I saw his sort of name attached to this idea that there was going to be some archaeological work at Waterloo, and I'd always been kind of interested in the Napoleonic Wars, and, you know, I grew up with Sharp and so on, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, I know you're a fan, Marcus. And, uh, <laughs> so I, I sort of out of the blue, really, I reached out to Tony, who we've never met at that point. And I don't know if you remember this, Tony, or not, but, um, I, I just emailed saying, Oh, I, I sort of heard you're doing this project. And I, I've done some battlefield stuff in the past with uh, mostly civil war sites and things like that. Um, and I was starting a PhD at the time and things like that. So I just emailed him saying, Hey, is there any chance, you know, like, there's a a spot available I'll just make the tea I really don't care like if there's any chance of me to to get on this project and uh, Tony very graciously responded and said um, oh well you know it's kind of early days and we'll sort of see how it goes you know I don't really know what's going on yet and so that was that was great and time went by and um, the sort of first field season was coming up and I'd sort of not really heard anything and I'd always kind of figured that, well, it's going to be a bit of a long shot. Anyway, Tony's a sort of professional, you know, and i obviously watched Tony on things like Two Men in a Trench, and I, I kind of figured that, well, he's got like a team, you know, of people that he always works with, and the, chan- the chances of me going are like slim to none anyway. And then a few weeks before, I suddenly had another email from him saying, oh, by the way, do you, are you still interested? Do you, do you fancy coming out to supervise a, a team? And, uh Obviously, the answer was yes. And uh, that was the first proper field season that we did in the summer of 2015. Um, there had been a little bit of work there earlier on in 2015 with a small group of people, which I, I wasn't involved in. But then, yeah, I came in that very first main field season and haven't looked back. It's honestly been one of the best things I've ever done.
4: Fantastic. Yeah, I didn't want to mention Two Men in a Trench, because obviously all our listeners have heard um, mm-hmm. Professor Tony on an Ungentlemanly Act special, but yeah, I grew up watching him on uh, Two Men in a Trench and seeing all of
1: those bits. It's very depressing when I when I speak to people, obviously, of some degree of maturity, and uh, then they tell me, oh, I, I grew up, or I was a kid watching Two Men in a Trench, and... I have to say, it's it's really nice when people say I got into archaeology or history because I used to watch your shows on the TV. But nonetheless, it's uh it's it's a it's a, a, a on the nose reminder that the clock is ticking. This <laughs>
6: tired <laughs> um,
1: generation, Tony. It's all right. uh, well, that's, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's 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 really nice. But uh, yeah, as as Sam says, and not looked back. You know, um, Waterloo Uncovered is a bit of a home now. I think for. It's quite funny, actually. I mean, one of the jokes that goes around is that it's a retire- retirement home for ex TV presenters <laughs> because there's a, there's a few of us pottering about. Um, and if that's a retirement home, then, you know, I, I'm kind of enjoying it. Well, we, we don't just have
4: um, yourself and two men in a trench of TV fame and what's going to cover. There's still Harding as well. There is if you watch Time Team and like history, I don't know what they're doing with their spare time. That was uh, sensational TV for its era.
1: Well, funnily enough, um, Phil has just today, I don't know whether, um, Stu, you got your email, but he sent me the draft of an article he's just written on his work at Ugamal, which will be appearing in a well-known archaeology magazine sometime soon. Brilliant. Once I've applied red ink to it, of course. But no, it looks great. So, yeah, Phil, Phil, Phil is wonderful. I, when, I was, when we used to do Two Men in a Trench, we would always find that kind of, Time team were in the next valley and we thought, right, we'll, we'll, we'll go to a pub and we'll have a rumble between the two crews. And, and there was all this jocularity. And Phil and I, Phil and I when we we're on site, do spend a little bit of time um, taking the wee-wee out of one another. But he's, he's he's, and as everybody else will attest, he's the most amazing technical digger. He's stunning. I and mean, he's just, you know, a, a yeah. master at yeah. what he does.
5: Yeah, that, that's 50 years of field experience for you right there.
1: Yeah, I'm getting towards that now, and I have nowhere near any any level of skill. <laughs> <laughs> it's the magical hat. He must still wear that hat. Is all I
4: can think of. One I think
1: the, the hat took itself out
4: to Belgium in the first year that we were there. It's
5: so rancid.
1: Yeah, it it is pretty awful. It's even got its own Twitter account, I believe. Phil yeah, Harding's yeah. hat. Yeah, it's, yeah, his hat gets more followers than any of us put together. It's outrageous. <laughs> And and the hat set it up itself, you know, it is a sentient thing now.
4: It's very amazing. You just need the problem with the hats building other hats, then we all need to... Right. Uh, Zach, can you take us back to Hougamont for us,
2: please? Yeah, sure. So Hougamont is one of three... um, Well, actually, it's one of four farm complexes, actually, that are occupied by Wellington's forces. Uh, Hougamont is out on Wellington's right flank, and a little bit forward of the ridge. Uh, uh, La Hayson is in the centre very close to Wellington's front line, about 300 yards or so and then you have Papalo out on Wellington's left flank and then behind the ridge you have Mont Saint-Jean uh, so Hougamont, I it's really good that you've mentioned already that it's not just the Coldstream guards that garrison Hougamont because I think that is people's perception. Um, I think sometimes people make Hougamont the be-all and end-all of the battle it does play a really important role in that it draws in Raul's second corps. Um, there's a big debate about to what extent does it get sucked into the fight for Um, But the point is that rather than marching past it, Braille spends the day focusing on Hougamont. So it's important that it's there. Um, there is It is claimed that Wellington said um, that Hougamont was the key to his line. Actually, if anything was the key to his line, I think it's probably Le Haysan as as kind of was proven over the course of the afternoon when La Haysan fell and the imperial guard went in but Hugemont has been the focus of, of a lot of myth making i think um everybody knows about the break-in but as we're going to discuss um the the waterloo uncovered team have, have found that what we thought we knew isn't quite what actually happened um so it's it's a really really nice place to start our discussions about what you folks have have discovered and why you started working there.
3: So, yes, I mean, I think, I think this is a really interesting, actually, and it's such a good example of where archaeology is doing something different from history, basically. So everyone knows these stories and everything, but until you actually start, um, I mean, we've done a lot of, a vast amount of metal detecting, which is which is essentially our, our kind of, um, our go-to technique to, to start recovering some of these archaeological artefacts. Um, one of the interesting things about about the metal detecting around Hoonmon actually is, in the first year, 2015, we started doing some metal detecting in the area of Hoonmon called the Killing Ground, and um, we ran the metal detectors over. You know, took t- took a sort of morning to do it, and we only recovered three musket balls, which was kind of insane considering the um, the amount of fighting that that happened there. So there was a, I think. Our conclusion from that was actually that there had been quite a lot of illegal metal detecting going on uh, around around that area, especially near the walls, because people can kind of come in and elicit the, uh, elicit the metal detect without being seen by anyone. And the battlefield itself is protected by Belgian law, so it is in fact illegal to do metal detecting um, anywhere on the battlefield. And so actually, we were like, oh my goodness, we've just put together this big project and actually... There's nothing here. It's all gone. Um, so we were really, really worried about that. But then we, um, as archaeologists like to do, we got a big machine in and uh, stripped off a bunch of the turf in front of front of Humon and metal detected the stripped area. And then suddenly, there's hundreds of musket balls. I think we must have about a thousand musket balls just from just from the Humon area um, alone. And those those musket balls can really tell. A really interesting story about what happened which is outside of the um outside of the the kind of history books and it and it's outside of the history books because it's super super personal so you know that each one of those musket balls was put in put in the barrel of a musket by a person you know like it it's really a visceral thing and that's the difference with archaeology i think from history and that's something that we've that we've really found there at Huguenot. and um Well, Tony, I don't know if you wanted to talk a bit about what the actual significance of those musket balls, especially in the Killing Ground are? Yeah, the the Killing Ground...
4: You're changing our understanding of the battle.
1: Well, we are are in our own modest way, and I, I think what we don't want to say is that archaeology has come in and basically trashed the history. I mean, we are historians as much as we are archaeologists. And so the accounts have really been a guide to uh, much of the uh, uh, survey that we've done. But as a case in point, the, the killing ground, and the killing ground is a term that is not contemporary to the battle. It comes in later. Um, but it's the area, it's the strip of open ground to the south of the garden wall at Hugermont. Um, and it's, that, it's the patch of ground that the French fighting their way through the wood would then have to negotiate to engage with the physicality of the built structures at Ugumont. So if they wanted to get over that wall, they had to get over 30 metres of open ground first. And while they're doing that, they're being shot to pieces by um, allied troops on the other side of the wall who are either shooting through loopholes cut through the wall or stood on fire steps and shooting over the top of the wall. And there are kind of vague descriptions of piles of French dead at the base of that wall after the battle, and there, there are one or two paintings which show that, which are pretty much contemporary. Um, the interesting thing is that despite the wealth of documentary accounts and eyewitness testimony that we have from Oogamon, thanks to the likes of Siborn and Clay and all of the rest of it, um, there is a very little description from either side of that engagement next to the wall. And I, I've, I've been through those, those, those French accounts that are av- available in translation, thanks to the work of one or two historians, and obviously through the, the, the Anglophile um, accounts. And this is the thing, the story of Ugeman is very much an Anglophile account. It's, be, it's been written by those on, on Wellington's side. But what the archaeology offered up was an incredibly visceral picture of what actually happened there. And I've done a lot of battlefield archaeology. And this, this to me, and I was looking at it, I was talking about this again yesterday, and looking at the plots of those hundreds of musket balls that Stu's just mentioned, and in meaningful groups... And what we've been able to do in plotting, and and it's not just individual finds, it's, it's their relationship to the next find and their relationship to the wall and to the wood and everything else. What we've got is patterning, which allows us to see which parts of the wall the French stormed. So we know that there's a high concentration on the corner, the southeast corner, there's a Huge cluster just a bit further down and Stu and I actually had the privilege recently of writing a a paper on this Taking this apart and looking in detail at what it means and what that archaeology has done through the the simple use um, Stalled as it was initially by this this uh, thought that and there was nothing there What the simple use of a metal detector under archaeological Discipline has done has given us a really intimate picture of an engagement which cost a huge amount of life on the French side, and ultimately, and again largely unrecorded in the, in the literature from the eyewitness accounts, resulted in at least a limited incursion across that wall which then results in a firefight within the garden, which we've again got archaeological evidence for. So it's a really exciting. I like to think that in years to come, when if hopefully people are still teaching conflict archaeology and battlefield archaeology, this will be a textbook example of what metal detecting, which is one of the techniques we use, can tell us and add to the history. So I'm quite proud of that bit of work.
4: And it's been backed up by recent publications for people like Gav Glover, who've uh, released books, who've looked at first-hand accounts and arc- uh, yep. the artist work, and it's, they're going hand-in-hand. Hand. Uh, and it's not like in in Sharp, you know, for example, we just see this one breaking, bit of fist fighting, 13 probably dead, save the drummer boy, close the gates, Hougamont's defended. And I I gave it as a case study recently to um, some soldiers in my regiment, and they start looking at. You say it's a case study. People start looking at it, going, "Oh, there's a there's a wall over there. Let's defend the wall." And that's not talked about with who you are. The orchard is forgotten. You just talk about the farmhouse. So I was wondering, maybe Sam, going and tell us what you found in the orchard as well. That's not as talked about when we look at the farm at all. Yeah. um,
5: Well, there's a couple of things actually. In terms of the orchard specifically i think um what we've mostly found there is that we we sort of concentrated in that area i think it was mostly in 2015 um and we we really just saw a huge spread of musket balls but basically indicating that the fight kind of flowed to and to and fro across that area for most of the day which sort of backs up what the what the accounts say um we did at one point see if we could locate the ditch around the edge of the orchard, um, which was, I think, one account suggests that the French may have used it, um, or it may have been used, rather, to bury some uh, dead Frenchmen, possibly. Um, but the real sort of interesting point that we have come across in the course of investigating the slightly wider Hougamont area was we have put a whole series of trenches uh, and little what we call sondages, which are basically sort of regular holes in the ground. We put those up against the actual garden wall that surrounds the ornamental garden at Hougamont. Um Because once you go there today, you see these lovely loopholes in the wall. They've got sort of stone around them. And people say, oh, well, that's, you know, a loophole that was made by whoever. And they were firing out of it, and, you know. But once you start to look at the wall, you can see it's just heavily patched. Um, you know, it's made up of all sorts of different phases of brickwork and things like that. And you start to think, well, what, what bit of this wall is actually original? So that was one of the things that we wanted to try and work out. Is this structure that we see today the wall that was defended during the battle? So putting all these sondages in at the base of the wall meant that we could examine the foundations of the wall at each of these points. And basically what we discovered is that the wall as it stands today is not the wall that was standing in 1815. It probably contains fabric that was standing in 1815, but, and maybe one or two tiny little bits that have survived through chance. But basically all of it has been rebuilt several times over. And if you look at historic photographs of the farm, even relatively recent photographs of the farm, You'll see bits that have collapsed, you know, bits that are hanging off, bits that have been re- rebuilt, filled in. Um, and really, there was a, some crucial evidence that kind of confirmed that to us. We had evidence in these sondages of where uh, the wall had been rebuilt. So what we might call a recut for the foundation, basically to sort of build up the foundation again. The very base of the foundation, we believe is the original foundation, built on on the exact line of where it was in 1815. So that's the below ground bit. But in order to rebuild the wall, you sort of have to cut away a little bit so you can mortar everything in and build it up again. So anyway, that leaves a distinct archaeological signature. You can see where that cut has been made in what we call the section, i.e. the cross section of what we're looking at. Now, that recut is cutting through subsoil. And the subsoil is where we're finding all the musket balls and bits and pieces after we strip off the turf, as uh, Tony and Stu were talking about earlier. And crucially, within that subsoil, we found in some of these sondages battle-related objects, so musket balls. We had a bit of grape shot out of one of them, I recall. So what we know now, stratigraphically and archaeologically, is that that recut is cutting through material that was deposited during the battle. So therefore, it has to be later. So therefore, we can prove, archeologically speaking, that everything that came above that is later than the battle. Does that make sense? Yeah, Yeah, that's That's
1: that's, that's a brilliant archeological discourse and I'd forgotten all of that. I'd forgotten your recut. That was that brilliant trench you had, wasn't it?
5: Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had a whole load of stuff in there, but it was a really nice little sequence and a really clear story you could quite easily see. And you could see where the original foundation cut was as well, which was then truncated by this recut. So it was all very, very clear, um, and a, just a crucial little piece of evidence. And it, it shows you how, with relatively small amount of work, this one of these little sondages is only about a meter wide by about two meters long, or something. You can actually get a lot of information. That again doesn't change the story. The wall is still where the wall was, but we can now say that basically everything above ground. Is not contemporary with the
4: battle because I know people who've taken bricks from that wall. I think it fell down at one point, and they took them home and they have a few musket balls. And I'm thinking this is all this is all evidence. It's really nice to have a Waterloo memento on your bookshelf at home, but it should really be in the hands of the professionals after a while.
1: <laughs> yeah, you, ha- you have to you have to specially select archaeologists because archaeologists, by and large, um, though I'm 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 got slight inclinations, do not have the collector gene. Um, and we, I, I think it comes out of our training. We are entirely focused on the story that objects have to tell, um, which is our job, rather than the objects themselves. Um, so you're, you're in pretty safe hands with your cultural heritage if you've got an archaeological team on board. Um, the, the same can't be said of, you know, all of all of, all of those other types that come along. But the, the, people people are educated. You know, one of the things we've done is we've archaeology has had a, a long and and rather um, touchy relationship with metal detectorists, and uh, we we first started using detectorists back in. Um, uh, Two Men in the Trench days, you know, decades ago. And uh, at that time, archaeologists had very little in common with metal detectorists. They were, they were basically the enemy. They were the ones that came in and looted the sites, etc. But we realised very early on that if you're looking at a battle from the historic period, and a lot of your artefactual material is going to be metal. You're going to need a metal detector to recover it. And so we brought these local clubs on board and started to work with them. And what we started to do was we learned from them because, you know, I'm a firm believer you can't just thrust a metal detector into an, an archaeologist's hands. And you know, these guys have been working with these, these pieces of equipment for decades. They know exactly what's, what's going on. And, and their recovery rates are phenomenal. But so we were learning from them, but they were also learning from us things like context, things like the importance of spatial relationships and how that a musket ball in a jam jar in your living room um, or more likely your garage means absolutely nothing even if you know it came from Waterloo it's just a piece of lead but if you know that that musket ball came from the middle of the killing ground and is from a brown vest and is surrounded by a bunch of French .69 musket balls it has a story to tell and that's continued into Waterloo Uncovered so we have some amazing metal detectors both Belgian and British um, working with us and, and it, it's It's an activity that our veteran cohort um, really like to participate in. It can be really rewarding, and indeed, you know, some of these guys were UXO experts in Afghanistan. They've used metal detectors, but for a much deadlier purpose. Um, So we'll uh, we'll come on to that in just. There's that intersection of what we do, but yeah, it's. um, it is phenomenal to see how that place has changed. So when you look at that wall, as Sam has said, um, don't believe everything you're seeing because it ain't the wall that was there in 1815. And you've also explored much further on the battlefield than just
2: Hougamont, haven't you? Especially at Mont Saint-Jean and the reverse slopes. Tell folks about what you found there. Katie, because you were out there in, in 2019, weren't you? When I think this discovery was made.
6: Yeah, I got to ship everyone out there and make sure they were all playing nicely. Um, so I'll leave it to Tony, Sam's view from the archaeology point of view. But uh, from a from a veteran point of view, obviously we unearthed some amputated limbs. Um, and that was an experience for everyone working on it. That was in Cammy's French, I believe, down the orchard in Mont-Saint-Jean uh, in what was, a, what was kind of a bank people just shoved some stuff into. That was more my technical language, you can tell. Um, but we discovered these remains. Um And we actually had, you know, a couple of people out with us who had been in incidents, which meant, you know, we had one particular chap who had two below-the-knee amputations, uh, so he was missing both his legs as a result of, essentially, metal-detecting and stepping on an IED, which is the very short version of that story. Um, and he now actually his mates with one of our metal detectors and he out of the experience there was this huge kind of dichotomy between their lived experience and you know an 1815 lived experience and obviously you know allied field hospital to an extent we were expecting to find that but what you can't control is how people are going to feel that and how they're going to experience it and we work with an amazing well-being support team who i love to pieces um, but actually what we were able to do was give people the space and time to be able to process that historical event with their own narrative, um, and it was, it was really fascinating. How did
4: they yeah, These are guys who, I like, believe, mostly Afghanistan, but maybe Iraq and uh, some other uh, recent conflicts as well. They've lost limbs, as you say, the Bannon guys are going out, effectively it's a smart metal detector, and they're the most exposed to the, the IEDs, the roadside Bombs. And they've lost limbs. I mean, where even very, recently, you know, 50 years ago, you wouldn't survive a double, a triple amputation. The loss of blood would would kill you. Medical advances mean that these guys are surviving and moving on and having to find new careers and, luckily, starting families and starting a new life, which is great. But how are they? How are they? You know, when it's confronting them, in front of them, uh, a limb from a a soldier from an army that they were in, probably you know the British Army. It loves its heritage and traditions, as we all do. And they yeah. see one of their forebears losing a limb. That must be. It was really strike home.
6: I think um, in that particular instance, yes, hugely. And I think the part that was so interesting was the space for reflection on it. You know, this wasn't something. It wasn't everyone jumping in a trench, pulling up a piece of bone. You know, it was nothing like that. It was. It was offset against the back of Mont Saint-Jean having this Allied Field Hospital Museum type thing that Anthony Martin's got there. And we had Mick Crumplin come out and do a bit of a talk and we managed to find the amputated limbs and start unearthing them at a similar time to Mick being in that field hospital talking about it. So we were able to tell more of the history around it, allowing people to frame their own experience. So it wasn't everyone had a very unique take on it and from where I was at which was under a tree with this particular person at one point in time you know he was very humbled by the whole thing I think to be perfectly honest uh which is maybe not 100 percent the right word but yeah it was it was a whole different way of looking at where he was now and you know huge medical advances and where he could have been then um so yeah it was pretty it was pretty special actually and we do quite a lot of other stuff on site as well. It's not it's not just archaeology, shockingly. Um, we do some creative writing and some art and, you know, fun, other things like that. And, and he did a really cool uh, reflection uh, with one of our creative writers, Nick Rendell, who's ex Coldstream Guards as well, of course, you know. Um, so, yeah, we were able to kind of just give him, give him the space and time to process some of those feelings, which was pretty cool.
4: That's, that's wonderful, yeah. I mean, Mont Saint-Jean is one of my favourite parts of the Basco and that's only a little bit because it's the brewery and beer shop. Um, but it is an amazing place. Uh, what were the other finds uh, from the from the guys in the trenches? What else were you digging up as well as the, as the limbs?
1: Uh, Mont Saint-Jean. Um, well, you'll be interested to know that uh, we we got those three limbs. And, and to put them in context, um, as Katie says, we weren't just hawking bones out of a... Out of a hole, they, they were, it looks as though these are these are legs that were amputated about mid thigh, um, probably in the barn at Mont Saint Jean. Um, there's a description from a Scottish soldier of a pile of limbs in the middle of the courtyard the day after the battle, and what we think is that these have been removed from the courtyard and basically dumped in a roadside ditch at the back of the farm, and we think it's a ditch because we've not just got these three leg um, amputated legs a bit a few meters further up on the same alignment we've got what looks like a large part of a horse and so we're obviously very keen to get back and continue the work at Mont Saint-Jean because potentially um, along the side uh, along that road ditch we've we've got various deposits relating to the medical activities um, at Mont Saint-Jean and Among the artefacts, well, one of the leg bones, when it it was uh, analysed by our scientists, was discovered to have a French musket ball lodged in it, or at least the smashed fragment of a French musket ball, which gave some idea of why these limbs had to come off at the time. It was the only option. Um, These soft lead balls shatter bone hellishly. But we also came up with a part of a scabbard um, very close to these these three leg bones. And I, I took a look at this, and I thought, that's come off a sword, and then I thought... No, that's that's different. So I took a look, and um, it is the upper part of the scabbard of a sword bayonet. And as you will know, only a few forms of troop had sword bayonets. And I'm pretty... that There's a good chance it's from a 95th rifleman, because the sandpit in which the 95th were, were based is the closest place on the line directly to the south. Of of, of, yeah. of this position, so I mean, it's just an object deposited alongside these bones. So you can't say, oh, you know, we've got the legs of a 95th rifleman, but there is an association there which seems to to point to the 95th being being wounded and 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 tended. In this, in this makeshift hospital. So, you know, every object has a story to tell and none of us are experts on, on everything. So we have to, you know, we have to go back and look at the books and go, oh my, you know. And, and In fact, it was a photograph of a reenactor which, which confirmed to me that this was, this characteristic piece of equipment was from a 95th rifleman. But there was all sorts, we got a six pounder cannonball from the same orchard that this ditch runs through. And I think that six pounder, it's, it's, it's from a small piece I think it's from the guard, the guard artillery that was brought up adjacent to the sandpit once uh, Le Haison was um, was was taken late in the day, and I think it's an overshoot from the bombardment at basically point blank range of being a skilling square at the crossroads, and it's it's landed splodge in the in the field behind Mont Saint Jean, and it's that when it starts to kick off like that, it, it, you know, it, it's it. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Archaeology is the closest we have to a time machine. You know, I, I can guarantee that you can walk across that battlefield with any of the books that you want to name. You will not have the same experience of encountering for the first time in 200 plus years an object like that that did its work probably at about 6.30 p.m. on the, on the day of the battle. You know, it, it's, it, it, it really does make the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. Yeah, when when you described the limbs,
4: uh, thigh, my first thing I did is I stroked my thigh, thinking of amputation. And then you said artillery fire. On a, it's basically artillery fire on a hospital, and that is so invocative, isn't it? Yeah. Um, can just pause and go back to what we're talking about with the with the veterans for a second. So anyone wants to pick up um, because this is really central to Waterloo and covered. Um What do they take away from the program, the experience? It's not just two weeks is it there's a whole project into this and how do they get involved how do they come about do you approach them regiments charities or do they approach you
6: i'll take this one (laughs) um well so i mean it's the combination we'll go with what do they get out of it first i mean so this year we're running four programs which is pretty exciting um in kind of in the face of us not being actual actually able to go to belgium this year, because COVID, Brexit, boo-hoo. Um, but, you know, onwards and upwards. So what we aim to do is look at five key areas. So we help people with well-being, recovery, transition, education and employment. Um, and we can take on our programmes, any serving personnel or veterans. You know, you don't have to be wounded, injured or sick. That's not a prerequisite. Um So if you've got a real interest, come say hi. Um Our application process is... Uh, currently happening as we speak for our four new programs um what we tend to do is go out to regimental associations and other charities and ask if they have anyone in mind who they think would benefit from our programs um, and like you said it's not just two weeks at waterloo there's loads of other stuff that goes on so there's museum trips there's well-being support there's great follow-ups with us you know what more could you want um and and people do tend to get a lot out of it one of the main things i would say is that Kind of sense of community and everyone, it's a really great project. To have everyone really stays friends, which is quite nice. Isn't that right, guys? Please say yes. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>
5: Definitely, yeah,
6: yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's a real, it's a really cool, you know, melting pot of people who have a genuine interest. And you know, you don't have to be an archaeologist or a historian at all, it's just something that you might be interested in and offering you a chance to do something different. We also work with uh, the Dutch very closely. Um, we're trying to make things as international as possible, so this year we were going to have the Dutch on site anyway as part of our veteran support programmes, as we always do, um, and we are going to reach out to the Germans as well, uh, but hopefully they'll be on a virtual programme with us, um, which is going to be good. So yeah, that's basically it. If people want to get involved, they should email apply at waterloouncovered.com, and someone, probably me, will reply to them, so... <laughs> Yeah, I
2: was talking a, a few months ago to one of the veterans that you've helped, actually, who I think now works on the programme, um, uh, Ben Mead. Um, and he was saying that for him, the beauty of this was that he could use his brain and body kind of simultaneously, but also independently of one another. So it allowed him to kind of compartmentalise things. And when he wanted to, the, the physicality of, of digging could be the distraction. Do you think that's what particularly works about this project?
6: Yeah, I think so, for quite a lot of people. I mean, Stu, we've been planning a fines programme recently, I think Stu put it in a much more eloquent way than that, but it was, than I would put it, uh, but it's essentially, you know, the monotony of a task gives you space and time to think about other stuff and process other stuff, and you're usually in a trench with someone who you can chat to about that should the need arise. So it's again that sense of community against the interest of the archaeology and the battle, uh, which seems to work really well, but yeah, I can't remember the phrase, Stu, but it was a good one.
3: It was probably something along the lines of archaeology is 95% boring and 5% really interesting. I think that's that was probably <laughs> it. So you spend a lot of your time just scraping away or, or whatever, you know, or or indeed doing metal detecting and, and you know, that's, that's kind of meditative as well and the troweling is meditative and it takes a long, long time and you're doing things really slowly. But what that allows, especially with the veterans, is if they're all working together in small teams in one trench, you're looking down at what you're doing and you don't have to feel like you're kind of around a table and this is a therapy session or anything like that. You, they just have the space to, what well, we all in fact have the space to, to just talk about whatever comes into our heads and, and there's no pressure or anything like that. And I think it, that is what works really, really well. And, and Ben obviously put it, you know, perfectly right there that it's, that you're using your body, but in order to, when you're using your body, you can also then just start thinking about other stuff and, and, um, And opening up in ways that you wouldn't necessarily do if you were face-to-face with someone kind of trying to have a conversation about your past, you know.
0: Yeah.
3: Uh, So that works very, very well.
0: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together.
5: down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month, So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com switch.
0: $45 up for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
4: And they must have a really good different- perspective on things. They're nearly always, you know, former soldiers, but I guess other services as well. Um, and they're coming face-to-face with these things, and they'll probably be thinking at it from a different angle, rather than academic and experience in archaeology. Uh, do you find yourself kind of learning from them, having put a different hat on?
3: Yeah, I, th- I think,
1: I mean, uh, I think we've all had this experience, partic- and, and it, it us, arose arose at Oogamon, which... And the, the fascination with Ugamon is that when you're on the ground, um, you know, it's not like looking at, on a plan in a history book or in Google Earth. It's, you're trapped in a space, and you know that next to that space there's another space. You haven't got a clue what's happening in it. Somebody's possibly digging a hole during the battle. Somebody was probably fighting for the life over that wall. But your, your viewpoint is very restricted by the built environment, which is less now than it was, because a lot of the hedges that were there are gone. You know, the walls are still there. If, if albeit rebuilt, but the hedges have gone. So it was a much more compartmentalized space at the time. And I've been in conversation with, with veterans, and they will go, they will, they will almost step back and they will go, This is just like the compounds I used to fight in in Afghanistan. These small and spaces where, you know, that, that wall could have saved their life. They've fired over a wall like that, or they've stormed a wall like that, or come through a gateway in a wall like that. And you know, and uh, quite amusingly, they would say, that's a rubbish place for a, for a loophole. Well, funnily enough, that loophole isn't in its original position. It's, it's, a, it's a remake. It's rebuilt into the Reconstructed Wall. So there are insights like that. And, and I've been with veterans. I, I've been with veterans in the Falkland Islands, walking across the battlefields there. And I just step back and I watch how they operate within a, a, a terrain. And I've had them talk me through it. I, I was I was in the Fulton Islands on two sisters with a Royal Marine veteran, and he talked me through his battle. And I said to him at the time, it was just ours, and I said, I would give a million quid right now to have my students here. They would learn far more for you from you in the next two hours than they will in a lifetime of me in a classroom. And that's what it's like at times with the veterans. And it, it, it is very much a two-way street. Um, everybody's learning from every, everybody else, if they've got the ears to be listening and most of the people on this team have at all levels, and that's one of the wonders of Waterloo Uncovered.
3: I think that's what makes it so unique and so interesting to
4: have those um, different angles, academic, rehabilitation, and uh, military all kind of coming together on what is such an important battle, and we always think it's one of the most published battles and most talked about, and yet we're still uh, coming to terms with the scale of it as well.
2: One of the things that has always been quite striking for me about waterloo is kind of the scale of that death and you know i know a couple of you here on this call will know that and um, this is something that i'm quite kind of passionate about in terms of the graves of these soldiers on all sides killed during the battle um but what's quite odd is that we don't seem to have evidence of mass graves they must have been there but for various reasons Um, they they haven't been discovered. So I wondered if you could talk us through your work that you've done at Hoogamart based around the search for that funeral pyre that some of the the images that we have handed down to us suggest was there, but your research suggests perhaps wasn't precisely what it was.
1: I don't want to dominate the conversation here, but I'm I'm just, as he sticks his hand up like a keen schoolboy, I've just written a a rather substantial paper on this issue. Where are the mass graves of, of Waterloo? And Katie, have you read it yet, Katie?
6: Yeah, I actually have read it. It's very good.
1: Good, thank you, thank you, awesome. because obviously we've done all of this archaeological work, we've done geophysics, which allows us to see, you know, areas of disturbance underground, theoretically, if there were grave pits there, they would show up, we've targeted, targeted a lot of these anomalies with, with trenches, as, as Sam was talking about, um, and as yet, we have, the, have to find a formal grave. Now, as you say, we we, we were tasked by the curatorial authorities um, in Belgium to take a look at the area in front of the South Gate, which is now a car park. And we have a couple of um, artistic renditions of body disposal in that very area, Um, one of which shows a shallow grave with uh, naked corpses being piled into it. And funnily enough, also to the right of frame shows naked French soldiers lying dead at the wall that we were talking about. Um, and the other, the other is exactly the same location, slightly different perspective, a different hand. This one's by James Rouse, slightly more primitive, and it shows naked bodies being thrown onto a funeral pyre of brushwood. And I've, what I've done is I've been through all of the visitor accounts of the, from the civilians who, who were there within days and weeks of the battle, and indeed the artists as well, and they were there in time, Unlike most of the troops to witness the burial operation, the troops, troops do it origi- um, initially, it's very quickly taken over by um, hired help from local, local civilians. And um, they, they write about the, the, this burial process. And people like Charlotte Eaton, who's a fantastic account, she describes um, the charred remains of burnt bodies, but also the, the graves with, with skeletal remains in them. And so there's this very complicated mixture. It's a very pragmatic process of getting rid of the bodies. And I've been through these accounts and it it looks as though it takes um, around uh, 10 days for for much of the burial process or body disposal, we should say, to to be completed. Um, And that is both burial in single graves, but also small group graves, maybe three, four, five men, but then also the mass graves, which may range from anything, from dozens to hundreds, there are descriptions. I mean, for instance, the, 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 there's, there's a description of a, a mass grave in the great orchard at Oogamon containing 7,000 bodies. Um, I can tell you for a start, there never was a grave with 7,000 bodies in it at Ugamon. You're having to deal with hyperbole right the way through these accounts. Um, but the point is that we have failed on every occasion, either to find evidence for a funeral pyre, i.e. burning, or burial. And I've, I've, I've extended that research to look at these old stories about, in the decades following the battle, the commercial extraction of human bones for use as, as fertilizer, basically as phosphates. And the documentary that record there is, is fairly convincing. And I uh, now putting together that his, that history, those eyewitness accounts, and the archaeology, I think it's very likely that most of the large mass graves at Waterloo um, have were, were were mined for a human bone to be used in, 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 on farmers' fields. In, in I've got records for Scotland and England um, as bone dust, and it's quite striking that over the most of the battlefields i work on there are always stories of oh back in the 19th century workers were digging a ditch over there and they found a mass grave or they found this they found that there are very very few of those stories at waterloo we've actually got one recently in which we're going to investigate but i think the point is that within 20 years of that battle all of those big graves that would be regarded as commercially viable and essentially be quarried and could be readily pointed out by locals. I was involved in the burial of that. Yes, I'll take that money. Thank you. Feel free to take them. They've got what would have been left would be those small graves, those single inhumations, And there are descriptions of these littering the fields like molehills in, in the months after the battle. But the point is that they are so shallow that the plough, which is reapplied instantly, within, you know, within days or weeks of that battle, they are replowing these fields. Those remains are just going to be ploughed up, they're going to be turned and exposed on a regular basis, and they are literally going to disappear. So it's no coincidence that the only single body that's been excavated by archaeologists was that was that, that was found when they, were, when they were building the new museum by our, by our colleague um, Dom. Um, And it it was missing its head because its head had been ploughed off So you've got you've got a double a double blow there You've got the mining for, for of the big graves for for fertilizer And you've got the plowing out of the small graves net result Being that for all those thousands of men that were killed in that battle Not many of them are still lying in holes in the ground at Waterloo That's my idea anyway yeah, uh, and I,
2: I'm really interested to read your paper actually, because as you know, we we discussed about this quite a lot. Um, we should say though that it's not just farms that you guys have explored and found some really interesting stuff at. You've also been doing some digging around the Anglo-Dutch position, I believe, and have kind of found some stuff there. So, how does the open battlefield kind of compare to Hugemans, Stu? Do? I don't know if you want to kind of take
3: that one. Well, um, it's. Complicated. Uh, <laughs> and basically, we're we're in the same problem as we were with with Hougamon in that um, unless you strip off the topsoil and start metal detecting the subsoil, the artifact density is very very low, um, and that is actually in most of those areas. That's to do with the plough probably, um, as Tony was saying. So that. Been plowed over and plowed over and plowed over, and, and basically all of the artifacts are scattered out all over the place. We've done we've done some work um, near the uh, place where the NS Square was, and we've done quite a big metal detector survey of that field to attempt to kind of basically find find the remains of the square as it was as it was decimated during the battle. Um, and to be honest, we we do have we do have sort of clusters of of artifacts, but it's very very um, it's very dispersed and very slight. So what we could probably do with doing is um, is getting a big machine and <laughs> and stripping off the topsoil. But of course, we've got to remember that this is a this is a working landscape, and you know farmers are just they've been living there for two hundred years well they've been living there for thousands of years and have been using the landscape over and over and over again and are still using the landscape. So for us to just come in and go, hey, you know, this particular day two hundred years ago is the most important thing ever. Please let us dig up all of your years you know, crops of potatoes. It's it's kind of a it's a big ask for them. I mean we have done small bits and we've had to pay for the privilege and it's the most expensive potatoes that we've anyone's ever bought, I think. But um, <laughs> um so yeah in terms of in terms of the open battlefield it's it's tough to 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 find things the the other thing to think about of course is because of the plowing as well in in the in the last 200 years there's been quite a lot of um erosion so the the tops of the ridges will have been sort of plowed and plowed and plowed and then the rain falls and then it you know there's it creates some um, colluvium in the in the valleys so then the valleys fill up so there's lots of places which would be super interesting to look at, like the area of the Great Cavalry Charge where they come down and then back up onto the slope and everything, Um, but that valley actually now is only a very slight valley, and it was only a relatively slight valley then, but even so it's been filled up with loads more material, and that's enough material to to obfuscate the, um, the metal detectors so that they can't get deep enough in that valley for us to be able to investigate those places. So we've got quite a few challenges in the, in the open battlefield. But one thing I would just, uh, like to say is, and this relates a little bit to Tony's, uh, discussion of mass graves as well. We've just this year, well, months ago, um, have started on a collaborative PhD project with Uh, co-funded by um, Waterloo Uncovered and the University of Bournemouth, which is basically a a PhD student called Duncan, who is going to be looking at new geophysical techniques across the battlefield. So over the next three years, and he better finish it in three years, because I'm his supervisor, and if he doesn't, he's in big trouble. Uh, In the next three years, hopefully, we'll be doing some... Much wider scale geophysics um, with some with some pretty fancy equipment out of in collaboration with um, Ghent University, which will allow us to get a little bit deeper um, <clears throat> and basically remotely sense the areas of um, uh, metal metal work, you know, like clusters and concentrations of metal work, without having to use a metal detector. And you basically tie this stuff to the back of a quad bike, and you can cover vast of the battlefield. So that'll help us with looking for concentrations of metalwork, but it'll also theoretically start revealing some possible areas of, of mass graves as well. So keep your eyes peeled on that one, we'll see what he comes up It's to. always developing, thing,
4: especially with the technology. Um, one of the like, really impressive things of Waterloo Uncovered are the, the artifacts you're finding. I think I've seen a few when you uh, bought the for a temporary exhibition in London, but there's a lot more that you're getting. Uh, but there's been real difficulties in securing the permissions to, to dig because you're going under Belgian law, uh, so it's a different kettle of fish. Uh, and this means that often you're the first to explore the area, though, when you're, when you're going into them. Um, what are the difficulties with this? And also, what are the, the items that you'll find general? What, pop and what are the other items you're finding? I'm going to direct this to Sam, because well, actually we've emailed about your uh, frustrations, politely put it, in finding these missions.
5: Um, well, I mean, the, the thing to say really is that we couldn't do this uh, project without our uh, our Belgian colleagues in a close collaboration with them. Um, they're from an organisation called SVW, um or they were, I think they've changed their name now, but they're, they're basically the local regional authority. Um, so we work very, very closely with them and, and effectively they're there to make sure at, at the sort of bottom line that we do everything properly. Not that we wouldn't, but um, they're there to sort of just make sure we're in their patch. We, we need to work to the appropriate standards. Um, of course, we do work to the uh, appropriate standards. Um, and uh, they're, they're very much our colleagues as opposed to people who are monitoring us or, or whatever. Um, so that's really the important thing there. Of course, there is a, for a lot of us, a kind of language barrier barrier with speaking to local landowners and things like that. So having local people on the ground is is essential. And in that builds up to actually getting out onto site. You know, if there are people that are local who can talk to landowners, who can sort out paperwork, et cetera, et cetera, then it just smooths the whole process. Um, so that really is essential. Um, in terms of the kind of artifacts, I mean, the vast majority of stuff we're getting, obviously, are the musket balls and bits and pieces like that. We're picking up a lot of things like buttons um, and other kind of smaller bits of kit. So occasionally little bits of uh, musket furniture, things like that that might have been broken. Um, Tony obviously mentioned the little uh, sort of scabbards fitting earlier, but we've had a few bits off of muskets and, and stuff like that. Gun flints is quite a or uh, relatively common one we find both uh, sort of brand new intact ones that have just been dropped. Presumably someone's just fumbled with it while they're trying to change it and they've, uh, they've dropped it. And also ones that are clearly broken and have been discarded. Um, and we've found both British and, uh, or I should say, Allied and, and French. And you can tell by the color of the flint, basically. Um, of course, you can't find flint with a metal detector, but luckily they used to wrap them quite commonly in lead so that they would sit nice and tightly in the jaws of the musket. So of course the metal detector picks up the lead. Um, so those are really, really interesting finds for me. I find them really interesting. Um, we found a couple right down by the wall in, uh, in Hougomont, and you just get this sense that there's a, an allied soldier desperately firing as fast as he can at the French who are coming through the wood. And then his flint breaks, and he's just as fast as he possibly can trying to change it, chucks it down, gets another one on, and starts firing again. You know, it's a real, like, little visceral kind of indication of the desperation, uh,
4: really. You don't get that with um, tingling in film adaptations, the flint's breaking. I said, boo, hit, I'm a reenactor, and have that problem where it blunts it just randomly because some flints stronger than others, and then you've got to change it. And you will, fire. it's only a little piece of metal and it's going into two, two rudimentary clamps. And if you drop it, second one, it goes, and you might fire it, and then it lasts one strike, it's gone. Or you might have one that will last a hundred, a thousand, and so it's like a thing of random. So it's a real one, yeah. personal, it could just sit there perfectly or let you down and kill you.
5: Exactly, yeah, it must have been. And, and obviously having your flint fail, if you are stood behind the wall at Hoogamold, You've got about 30 metres and then you've got the wood. And presumably you can see there is a hedge alongside the wood as well, which is quite thick. But presumably you can see a little bit of what's going on sort of 10, 20 metres or so into the wood. You can see when the French are coming and you're firing at them as they approach. But really, it's the last bit of their advance. And you can imagine having a flint fail on you at that moment as they're swarming through gaps in the hedge. You know, desperately trying to cross that ground as fast as they can. It must have been a terrifying moment because the weapon is the thing that's going to save your life at the end of the day. Um, so, yeah, it's a really interesting sort of indicator of the stress of battle and, and to sort of think about the personal kind of impact that that might have had on people. One of the sort of interesting things we came across, particularly earlier on, was, of course, Waterloo... Uh, is an incredibly popular reenactment event as well. You you yourself know, Marcus, obviously. Um, and particularly in 2015, it was enormous. And you have thousands and thousands of reenactors coming in from all over Europe and, and probably further afield as well. And they're camping in and around Hoogamal, in other parts of the battlefield. Uh, you know, a huge part of the battlefield is where they actually have the reenactment itself. So we were finding evidence of reenactment material um, we were finding evidence of the reenactor fire pits that had been dug in the turf, um, and just buttons and bits and pieces that had been dropped off of uniforms and stuff like that.
1: Which going obviously, re-
5: re-
4: two hundred years too late. Yeah, that's the thing. Like
5: re- replicas are exceptionally good, good these days, and, and with a few decades in the ground, it would start to look very much like an original. Um, luckily some of the buttons we found had bits of like cotton through them and things like that. So it was a fairly good giveaway. Um, and typically they were all very, very close to the surface. And that was again part of that rationale of stripping off a little bit of the turf with the machine is that you just sort of removed all that kind of debris, if you like, in, in the very top of the, uh, the topsoil. Um, so, but that's quite interesting to, uh, it, you know, it sort of goes down the road of looking at kind of commemoration and how do we interact with historic battles and all this kind of stuff. Um, so although they're a kind of contaminant, if you like, the reenactment-related material, um, it's an interesting aspect. Um, often you get reenactments which don't take place quite on the battlefield itself. They're sort of off nearby but not quite on it. So it was an interesting challenge anyway to sort of figure out
4: how To solve that problem, yeah, that's really unusual actually to have a battlefield with a battle reenactment with people dressed exactly the same on top. And how can you tell if a from 2015 or, uh...
5: yeah, I mean, luckily with when you have lead
4: objects after
5: they've been in the ground a while, you get sort of lead oxide forming, which turns everything white. So, usually, that's a reasonable giveaway that something's relatively old. Yeah, this is why you're the expert, <laughs> <laughs> and of course, luckily in reenactments, mostly. People are not firing musket balls at each other, I assume,
0: uh, unless they
5: perhaps really don't like the people, you know. But, <laughs> but luckily, yeah, um, you might get a few people who sort of cast the musket balls for a camp-type type activity. Um, but again, you should be able to tell those apart from the real thing by the general lack of the patination on the surface. Um, but <laughs> another sort of slightly related point to that, Although you can tell the musket balls from 2015 apart from those of 1815, there is also another battle around Hougamont in 1794, and it would be impossible to basically tell the material from 1794 apart from 1815. So that's another interesting aspect. The battle is a lot smaller, you know, but potentially we have got this whole scatter of objects which does include some pre 1815 material as well, but yeah, the, quite the, the, sorry Tony
1: sorry on. Sam I didn't mean to interrupt you there. but, but uh, as, as you'll agree the irony is that the first people to loophole the garden at Nogamont um, were the French uh, yeah. in earlier bath. from what we've done from it, it it seems to have skirted this is the Battle of Fleurus. Um, it seems to have skirted Oogamon, but we're, we're at the moment um, hoping to go into a, another collaboration to do scientific analysis of musket balls, which we'll be able, we'll be able to hopefully source them. And if, if we do have two battles that are separated by decades, we should be able to identify specific groupings, um, which, is, which is all very exciting. And that, I think that's another exciting thing about Waterloo Uncovered, is it's not a hurried project it's not a project that's dependent upon traditional modes of funding I mean I know in my work, you know, television has paid for a lot of what I've done but this is entirely different and as I said it's got all of these guys, every, everyone in this meeting has brought their own skill base and people with them and it's just phenomenal to see that and, and people come we, we had a meeting just this week about this new scientific initiative um, with, a, with a university, with a, an institution in France and it, it really is, as, as far as I'm concerned, and I, I've been in the game now for a, a long time, um, this is a unique project. And, I mean, it, it, we should get it embroidered in Latin or something on a, crest, on a coat of arms. It's, you know, it's the best thing I've ever been involved with. It's, it's really amazing. Um, but, yeah, Sam, Sam's quite right. The, 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 I have to say, you reenactor guys are fairly clumsy. I mean, the the number of ramrods and drumsticks and Lord knows what else we pick up out the grass um, is is quite phenomenal. But yeah, it does add that extra dimension. Yeah.
3: Well, I mean, from, from, what Marks,
1: from what Marx
2: has said, they're drunk half the time anyway. Um, either that or he's grossly embellishing the amount of drinking that happens. Uh, but uh, with, with what you've said, what's been your kind of your favourite find or your favourite moment from the, the various things that you've been involved with for uh, Water Uncovered across the years? Let's just kind of go around the room. Casey, do you want to start us off?
6: It's a tough one, really. I mean, I would have to say... I think I'm going to say I'm going to get it right. The How It's the Shell in 2019. Oh, Tony's like... Tony walking it through a wood by himself. That was a strong, strong day. But that was really cool. Because, um, you know, you Did don't... You like that
4: the... disposed of, because it might have had explosives
1: in it. Well... I've, 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 I'll tell you what happens to with. it when you get to me. Let, let, let Katie tell her wonderful story about her favourite find and then I'll fill you in on the reality of the yeah, version.
6: Yeah, the reality. <laughs> <laughs> My is definitely more fun. So um, we were all very excited and it was a very exciting experience. But yeah, I mean, it's particularly exciting when Belgian bomb disposal showed up and didn't think they'd be dealing with something from the Napoleonic era. <laughs> um, as that's not what they usually used to. So that was pretty cool. That um, I would say that was my number one, but honestly, the the amputated limbs and what that meant to people was probably the most poignant. I would say, um, but yeah, Tony can tell his story about the shell now because I've probably got it wrong. So
1: <laughs> no, you didn't. You, you did not. And and it was my call because I this thing came out and it was really deep and you know this thing had slotted into into the it was French. Splodged into the field, and um, so they dug it out. And we thought at first it was just a, a, a I think it's a 12 pounder or even bigger. I can't remember the spec now. Um, and we just thought it was a cannonball, so we're cleaning away, and then all of a sudden we we recognise there is a hole in it. And th- at that point it changes from being solid shot to hollow shot, and hollow shot, as you know, has explosive charge in it in the form of powder. And we thought, "Oh, here we go. We're right in the middle of the farm. um we've got veterans, we've got students, we've got archaeologists. If this gin factory if the, we've got a gin factory great if this baby goes up, it goes up big style. Now it might seem an overreaction because the hole was exposed. The likelihood is that the powder powder in it, if there was any in it, would be inactive. But I've heard enough stories of guys metal detecting American Civil War battles from the 1860s and blowing themselves up in their garages trying to clean these things up. So I wasn't taking any chances and we can't. Right. Health and safety on projects like this. This is a big, you know, there's there's 100 people on site. Yeah. And this is me making an excuse for for dropping the dime on the bomb disposal guys. So they arrive in their van in the uniform, and I'm I'm used to these guys, you know, I've done a lot of First World War archaeology, so this is this is instinct for me. So they arrive, and me and Stu are desperately trying to get photographs of this thing before it's taken away, and um, he's trying to do a, a laser scan of it, and Lord knows what else, and there's hazard tape everywhere, and, hey, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's normal. and the guys arrive, Whatever. and they say, look, this is really rare, this is really interesting, you know, this is part of the Battle of Waterloo, and they say, can, can you kind of just hose it out, and, and make it safe? And... Um, they but oh yeah yeah okay uh, so they go away and then we phone them up two days later um, about that howitzer shell um, oh yeah we blew it up <laughs> so uh, you know that there was there was there a really precious artifact but the point was we couldn't take any chances with it
5: one of them's got it on their mantelpiece now I reckon
1: a hundred, <laughs> a hundred yeah possibly but so so yeah that <laughs> that. That was a pretty good find. I'll, I'll quickly give you my favourite. Yeah, I think all of us will say the amputated bones. Um, there's no way that you can get over the emotional connection that we all had with that and the living people we were with. Um, that was really special. Um, going back to what Stu was saying, the discover it was not a find in itself, but the discovery that there were artefacts actually in the killing ground after we'd come to terms with the fact that the entire site had been looted, which was a bit of a downer. Um, which was why we did a recce, that was, that was great. But coming out of that, and I use it in a slide for my students constantly, and it's, it's the same sort of thing Sam's talking about, this visceral insight. It's a brown best musket ball, and it's got a really deep impression, multiple penetrating impression in the top, this big hollow. It's not from impact. It's from a soldier driving his ramrod repeatedly into that ball to drive it down the barrel of a brown best. That's not what you're meant to be doing. It's meant to be one swift as you will know, Marcus, one swift movement, pressing down that ball into the breach of the weapon. This guy's got French guys coming at him, shooting at him, and he's going like this. Do you know what he's probably done? He's probably loaded already. It, it could well have multiple loaded. But that is the archaeology of stress and fear in one full yeah. lead ball. And I, I think if I had to pick anything, it would be that that object.
3: That, that comes
4: back to what talking like, about. the panic. Uh, musket aren't like very intuitive. It's not like a rifle; you cock it, you fire it, and it points in it the direction. It, it's so many parts that can go wrong—from the powder to the flint to the ball to the spring—and yeah, if you if one of those goes wrong, I put to touch down because you think it's fine far- especially if you're firing a volley Yeah it kind of feels like you fired because everyone else is they the loud, ugly things so you kind of, you pull the trigger and then kinda of go bugger and then start loading again, basically. Um, yeah. 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 I can feel that like the panic between
1: Amazing. that and
4: the flint So then Sam what's what's yours? Um well mine has to be a I suppose a
5: collection of fines really. Um, but there was one which started it all, and that was the initially a Coldstream Guard button, uh, later buttons, and later also Scott's Guards buttons uh, that came out of Phil Harding's trench right down by the North Gate in Hoogamall Farm. He was investigating a, a large barn that had been previously built up uh, against the, the northern wall. and. The thing, I think Zach, you mentioned it earlier there, there's this iconic closing of the North Gate, uh, incident that is, you know, famous in the Coldstream Guards and it's one of the, the sort of famous incident, incidents of the battle. And of course there are lots and lots of documentary accounts, uh, from, uh, from the battle that talk about it and mention it and so on, but we actually were able to uncover the physical evidence that places those regiments in that particular iconic location during the battle, um, and so, and for me that was just a really interesting marrying up of the history and the archaeology. We know that they were there, but to have the physical evidence from the uniforms that guys were wearing during the battle was uh, was amazing. You know, and particularly that first one, couldn't we couldn't quite believe what it was to be perfectly honest, because it came out of all the demolition rubble you know, that was just everywhere in the trench. Um, so that was really amazing. And then last year we found, uh, sorry, no, uh, 2019 when we were last there, we found quite a few more. Um And there was particularly a guy called Ollie, who was a serving guardsman in the Coldstream Guards, and he was really into metal detecting, and he found a load of them. And just to see the reaction that he had to finding those buttons from his regiment, uh, were it was amazing. It was amazing to see.
4: And then so, that, that's it, yeah. Okay. That's, those are my finds. No, no, they're a great find. And then, Steve, when you're not lasering a bomb, what's your favourite find on the battlefield?
3: Well, now that the others have all used up all of my favourite finds, I think I'm going <laughs> <No>, um, <clears> to <throat> say a very boring archaeological answer, I'm afraid. And it happened in, I think, 2015 or 2016, and we were investigating some geophysical anomalies... Um, so it does kind of involve lasers, I guess, um, laser type stuff, um, <clears throat> because we were looking for areas of burning, essentially looking for looking for possible graves or what have you. And we found two really interesting bits just outside the north gate of, of Hugemon, and we were very excited about this. Okay, this is it, you know, first year digging. We're going we're gonna open up one of these things, and instead of finding you know a, a cremation pit or something, we actually found the um, brick kilns that were used to to make the fire the bricks to actually build Ugemon itself, so completely nothing to do with the battle whatsoever and, you know, 150, 200 years before and I think from an archaeological point of view that really brings home what we're trying to do here is we're trying to find this one tiny one day in the thousands and thousands and thousands of years of history on that battlefield and it's really important to remember that that Waterloo Battlefield is famous because of the battle, but it has been in use for thousands of years, and everything that we're doing, we can always come across, you know, prehistory or medieval history or anything like that, and, and um, sometimes I think we do get a little bit fixated on the battle itself, and um, and it's important to remember that it isn't all just about that one day.
4: Great answers. Thank you very much. It's really interesting to hear what, what you find, it's going to be different to what we look for when we go out there to visit. So thanks very much for sharing.
2: So what's the plan for the future then? Because Katie mentioned that, you know, COVID, Brexit, you can't go out this year. Obviously you can go out last year.
1: I'm sure there is a, a long-term project plan, but what's, what are the next stages for you all? Okay, Katie, tell them about the lockdown programme.
6: Yeah, I know. Well, this year, thanks for the great, None there, Tony, that was good. Uh, like I said, we're doing some pretty cool virtual stuff. Um, so we're running a virtual archaeology programme, similar to what we did last year, which is six weeks of amazing content from people such as myself and Tony and Stu and probably Sam as well, actually. <laughs> so you've got half the, uh, half the agenda on here already. Um, and that's going to be topped and tailed with some wellbeing support and looking at the archaeology we've done so far and what we want to do in the future. We're also running a finds programme, uh, which is really exciting. So this is going to take place in the second half of the year, really, um, with applications open now. We're working with the National Arm Museum too. So what we're going to do is take a group of veterans and give them the agency to create their own finds collections out of what we've got. And that will be going on display, um, pop-up display in the National Armour Museum in January 2022. And we also have a creative arts programme, which is along similar lines. So we've got a lot of stuff going on, uh, but fingers and toes crossed for Excavation July 2022, because we all really want to go back, so that is Plan A. It won't take you through plans like A to Z, because they're not fun, but Plan A it's going to happen, fingers crossed.
4: And I just want to encourage anyone listening, uh, if they have missed the Waterloo Uncovered Lectures, which I believe are on YouTube and your website. I strongly, strongly encourage people. Everyone from, uh, well, I think all four of you who are on today, to a few from Phil Harding and other experts you've got on. Uh, some are short and snappy and give you a little taste of it, and some are really in-depth and you can really get your teeth into the history. I really enjoyed them during when I was on furlough and finding things to do. And I think now they're online as a, as a resource, aren't they? So um, yeah. they're really good that so they're sharing what you found.
1: Sam should be recording one right now in fact what are you doing here Sam you should be recording I've already one do done
4: it
5: You've done it
1: <laughs> Yeah you've just
2: I know I know
5: Teacher's pet Um yeah I'll just give it a quick plug why not Um so yeah I just recorded a, a sort of another like I suppose lockdown lecture for the third lockdown um on the work that we started in 2019 at Freshmore farm and now that is way, way out on the east, the far east of the battlefield. Um, the farm itself didn't come under particularly heavy uh, sort of attack, but there were Dutch troops stationed there at the beginning of the battle. Possibly some of the very first shots of the battle itself were fired around there when the French cavalry scouts sort of probed around the area um, around about 10 o'clock in the morning, so pretty early on. Um, and... The interesting thing about um, Frischemont, also that's where the Prussians come across as well, of course, and one of the first places really that the Allies link up with the Prussians in that little corner of the battlefield. But one of the interesting things about Frischemont is that unlike Hougomont and Mont Saint-Jean and all the other farms on the battlefield, none of it exists above ground anymore, apart from a small well house. Um, it was basically partly demolished in the mid 19th century and then eventually completely demolished in the 1960s and so effectively today it's just the, it's just in the woods really um, and we opened up a whole series of trenches there to start exploring some of these structures what we learned from Hugemont was that we, we can't always trust the depictions even quite detailed plans might potentially be wrong so we wanted to start exploring some of these structures and there are massive structural remains under the ground still. Um, and we really have only just scratched the surface. The trench that I was uh, in charge of in 2019, we've got an enormous great vaulted, uh, either a latrine pit or a basement or a cellar um, that we didn't even reach the bottom of. You know? It's absolutely mind-blowing, the preservation. So uh, luckily, because it was only knocked down in the 1960s, So we've really just scratched the surface there um, and definitely a lot more for us to do for many years, I think, at Frisquemont. But if you want to find out more, check out my lockdown lecture coming soon.
4: Brilliant. So where can people find the lockdown lectures? Where can people find more information and how can they get in contact uh, if they want to donate money um, to Waterloo Uncovered because it's a charity? And finally, the veterans, I think Casey already said it, but reiterate, uh, how can they get in touch? So if you could all tell us a little bit about how they can get in touch, or Katie Stewart or whoever, um, we want to know more.
6: Well, the best place to go is the com website. Um, there you'll be able to find all of our lockdown lectures. You'll also be able to find ways to donate, uh, which we 100% encourage you to do, um, because, you know... We need to keep doing all this cool stuff. So if you've got some cash, do please share. Um, If you're a veteran looking to come on a program, you could email apply at waterloouncovered.com and someone will be in touch with more information and an application form. There you go. Snappy, right?
3: Yeah.
1: (laughs) And the links to all of those videos are there on the Waterloo Uncovered YouTube channel. But if you're interested in taking it... You're reading a little further. We've also got online versions of our reports on there as well. I mean, the idea has been all the way along, and this was very attractive for me was to have the information out there in the public domain as soon as we could, as soon as we could, um, which we've we've I think we've we've at least partially fulfilled that aspiration. So yeah, that's all on there as well. It's your one-stop shop really. That website it's pretty good.
5: What I would also say is if you want to kind of follow on future archaeological field work basically as it happens we every time we're out there we have a sort of running blog type thing on the website so uh, a dig diary uh, it's called so follow on with that that's there's loads of really interesting content basically as it happens um and all of us and include and indeed many others sort of will regularly post things on social media and stuff like that basically as it's happening almost um, Tony and uh, Stu have done lots of live kind of links up uh, through Facebook and things like that. Yeah, on, on site. Um, so yeah, sort of maybe follow on the Waterloo social media as well as some of us. If you...
1: We're going back we should... to Belgium not just yet, um, and we will we will be there for some. I'm, I'm really excited with Stu and, and uh, about this new geophysics program. It will be the biggest program in geophysics ever deployed on a battlefield. And uh, it's it's going to be really quite uh, quite a thing. So we just can't wait to get back. But like everybody else in this situation, we've got to be patient.
6: It'll happen.
2: Did you guys want to go around the room and publicise your own social media accounts?
5: Uh, mine is on Twitter
3: and Instagram, uh, Conflict Archeo. I'm at at Stew Eve, I think, or one word, on Twitter. I don't, I don't know what the Facebook is, so I'm not on the
6: Facebook. Uh, and I just run our work accounts. So,
1: <laughs> I love the way that Sue still calls it the Facebook. <laughs> it's so cute. Oh, bless I me. think it's just worth like
4: plugging it one last time. Waterloo and Uncovered, which is such a fantastic charity doing rehabilitation and you know rewriting history, along with. Um, the historians and the academics out there. Uh, It's really changing our understanding of the battlefield whilst doing something so worthwhile. Um, And you know, when I talk about it to members of my regiment, they're really surprised that that's a thing. And I think hopefully that will slowly, the knowledge will keep growing and uh, people will come to support it from the Serving Armed Forces as well. So on behalf of them, thank you as well. Um, And thank you for your time. It's great to talk to you all. Uh, I think I spoke to some of you Back in uh, 2019, I think was the last time we could all stand in a room and have a few beers and uh, look forward to the next time. Back next Thank Thanks you very time. much. Thank you very yeah, much. Nice. Mm.
6: There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them, so don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month, and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45
1: minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history or just
2: search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit.